Thank you so much, Epi. Hey, Cornerstone, my name's Steve Carter, and man, I'm just so grateful to be here. Driving up today from Phoenix, man, what, I mean, what like beautiful land you all live in. I mean, how lucky you are uh, to be in Prescott and the Valley. I mean, it's just, it's just stunning. Uh, I don't know about you, but if someone would have come up to you in 2019, let's say the fall, and said, hey, Here's what's going to happen in 2020. Meghan Markle, Prince Harry, they're going to leave the monarchy in Britain. Hey, you know what else they're going to find out? They're going to find out that in 2017, the Houston Astros, what I like to refer to as the Houston Asterix, cheated in the World Series. Or can you imagine if someone came up to you and said, hey, here's what's going to happen. The NCAA tournament canceled. NBA season going to be postponed, most likely canceled. You'd have been like, no way. If someone would have come up to you and said, here's crazy thing that's going to happen, 2020. NBA great, legend. I grew up in Southern California, rooted for this guy, Kobe Bryant, and his daughter and seven others were tragically killed in a helicopter accident. You would have been like, no way. And if somebody came up to you and said, hey, In the first quarter of 2020, there is going to be this virus that's going to basically put the entire world on lockdown. And it's going to have effects on the economy. Uh, It's going to have effects on every, and there's going to be at least a million people infected by beginning of April. You would have been like, no way. And every time we flip on the news right now, I feel like, I just keep hearing anchors use these unwords. We are in uncharted waters, uncertain days, unstable times, unsure, all the unwords. And so today, if you're like me, you need a word from the scriptures. We've been in this series called Signs and Wonders. And this series has been looking at these signs and wonders that Jesus fulfilled. And what we're going to do is look at a familiar story from the book of John chapter 6. But before we jump in, I want to take you and teach you a little bit about rabbinic thinking. See, the rabbis believe that the scriptures have more than one meaning. I grew up believing that every verse just had one meaning. But the rabbis, they they saw every verse like a diamond. And the way that you could turn a diamond, it would reveal a different uniqueness of the stone. If you remember, Moses, he was kind of leading the Hebrew people. But he was the judge. And everybody would bring their complaints and their frustrations and their struggles to him. And it was emotionally exhausting. It was burning him out so much so that his father-in-law, Jethro, comes to him. And so Jethro told, comes to him and is like, hey, you can't do this. It's going to burn you out. You need more judges. You need more leaders. And so Moses actually takes his advice and establishes 70 different judges. And this is where the rabbis believe that, well, if there's 70 different people who have 70 different experiences, kind of looking at one kind of conflict, they might have 70 different thoughts. And then they began to go, man, I wonder if the same is true with the scriptures. Almost like a verse is like a diamond that you could turn. 
And even as we turn on the news today, there are these storylines. And underneath the storylines, there's just kind of different kind of explanations, different understandings. And so today, what I want us to do is I want us to look at John chapter 6, and you're going to see it right here. It says this, when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat. And they were frightened. But he said to them, it is I. Do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat. And immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Today. I want us to look at the three storylines found in John 6. I want us to take John 6 like a diamond and begin to turn it so that we can see what this story is all about and how the first hearers, those disciples in the boat, would have understood it and what that means for us today, living in the midst of a unique time. Let's look at storyline number one, the creation story. I've been trying to think, man, what must it have been like before God created? I just think that it must have been so dark, just unknown. The scriptures tell us in Genesis chapter 1 that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. So there was no shape to it. It was void of meaning, void of purpose. And darkness was Everywhere, Darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now what I want you to do is I want you to focus in on without form and void. Because in Hebrew, it's the phrase tohu wabohu. And literally, if you begin to really study what this phrase means, it's this. That the earth was absolute chaos chaos there was no shape there was no meaning there was no purpose and darkness was everywhere but think about this in the creation story the spirit is hovering over the chaos but in john chapter 6 how those first heroes must have heard it was now jesus is walking on the chaos to the jewish mind they couldn't stand the water. You read the book of Luke, and the Luke will talk about how kind of the, the water was like the abyss. They believed that the water was kind of the gateway to the underworld. The water was uncontrollable. At any moment, the seas could start to rage with waves and storms. It was chaotic. And when I think about this, it's just how powerful it must have been for those disciples seeing Jesus not struggling in the chaos. But just like Genesis 1, where the Spirit was hovering over it, Jesus is walking over it, basically showcasing He is above the chaos in our creation. But let's go even farther. Genesis 1-3 says this, And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. 
It's just so powerful. Those first three words, and God said. So God literally like looks into the chaos. He looks into the darkness that is covering everything, and he speaks. And you know this in Genesis 1, what happens is God begins through his words to bring form, shape, to bring meaning and purpose to creation. This is powerful because when you think about this, is that, that doesn't work now. (laughs) What you think about this is that God literally like speaks into creation, starts to shape it and form. The same thing is true as Jesus is walking on the water. What ends up happening? He sees his disciples and he looks at his disciples and he says, it is I. Don't be afraid. It is I. Don't be afraid. Here's what I've come to realize is that there's power when we speak. Because when we speak, we can actually help someone be shaped and formed and closer to who God intended them to be. When we speak, our words can literally help someone discover meaning and purpose in their life. They can literally begin to move forward in the creation story. But also our words. Our words can actually bring about some chaos. Our words can strip meaning and purpose from the mind and the heart of a person. Our mind can literally just hear someone speak words and it just gets stuck in our head or our heart. And it can lead us down a path of ultimate chaos. And I think about this time. I think about the season that we are walking in right now. And I often think, man, what are my words? What are my words that I'm offering up in this time? Are they words that are literally helping bring order? Or are they words that are helping bring chaos? I mean, overnight, our house turned into a homeschool and a home business hiding so that we could do Zoom calls. And all of a sudden... You feel like all of this stuff is stirring within. It's like these seas are stirring of emotion within. And little by little, if you're like me, you might have had a moment where you just kind of said something that you wished you could take back. Because those words ended up not bringing order, but bringing chaos. And I love just how Jesus hovers over the chaos and he simply looks at his disciples and he's looking at us and he's saying, it is I do not be afraid. The second storyline is that of the Exodus story. Now, you got to understand that when the Hebrew people gathered together around the table, they took the words of Deuteronomy 6 very seriously, which said that we are to impress the commandments upon our kids. And the way that they did this was that they would tell three stories mostly every time they gathered around a table. The first one was the Exodus story. It's a story how God heard the cries of the Hebrew people and he rescues them. And there are these 10 plagues that go against Egyptian deities. And the last one was that of the Passover. And finally, God begins to lead a people out of slavery. They cross the Red Sea and they begin making movement in the wilderness and towards the promised land. The second story was that of Sinai. 
And you know the story of Sinai. It's where kind of God and Moses meet at the top of this mountain. There's like smoke and clouds everywhere. And God speaks 10 words, which become these 10 values. And, and rabbis think it was literally like almost 10 wedding vows that God was making to a people. And this is what we know as the Ten Commandments. And so they wanted their, their kids to understand that God has values. God has a way of life that he wants us to live. And then the third story was when the Hebrew people crossed over to the Jordan and moved towards the promised land. Because God is a way maker. So number one, God's a rescuer. Number two, God has values. And number three, God's a way maker. Every Jewish child knew these stories. Now, when you begin to discover in John chapter 6, it's powerful. Because John 6 verses 3 and 4 starts out like this. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples, his Talmudim. His students, his apprentices, these group of people who wanted to be like him. Verse 4, the Jewish Passover festival was near. So, you've got to understand it. If the Passover is near, what's John trying to do? John is trying to frame this story as one that is familiar. So all the disciples know the Passover, which was a huge festival for the Jewish people to remember what God did. Back in the Exodus story. And so he's framing it. And now these disciples are out on a lake. And they're not to the other side. They're stuck in the middle. They're stuck in the middle of just this storm. And it's just raging. And they're unknown. And they're unsure. Are they ever going to be able to get to the other side? This is exactly what the Hebrew people wrestled with. Were they actually, when the Egyptian army was chasing them, were they going to be able to get to the other side of the Red Sea? But Jesus says something. Jesus says something in this moment as he walks on the chaos and he says a phrase that I guarantee you those disciples would have thought. See, when Moses in the Old Testament, he, he was a murderer. You probably knew this. And so he was on the run. He was a fugitive. And he spends 40 years in the, in the desert. And one day God gets his attention. You know how he gets his attention? Through a burning bush. And the rabbis actually say that many times God was trying to get Moses' attention. Burning bushes all around Moses. But he was so distracted. His headspace, his heart space was unaware to what God was trying to speak to him. Finally, for one day he gets curious. And he walks over and he has this conversation with God. He takes off his air Birkenstocks because the ground is holy. He has this conversation with God through this bush where God says, I want you to go back to Egypt. And I want you to tell Pharaoh to let my people go. But Moses asks an honest question. Okay, well, what if Pharaoh says, who's your God? What am I supposed to say? What's your name? And God responds, I am who I am. Now, in Greek, that phrase, I am who I am, is ego I me. Stay with me. Ego I me. When Jesus is walking and he sees his disciples in the middle of a storm, in the middle of a crisis, in the middle of the sea, and they are 
frightened, the scriptures say. He looks at them and what does he say? Ego, I me. It is I. What he would say, and in Hebrew, they would have understood it as I am who I am. Don't be afraid. And I imagine those disciples who are sitting there going, get him in the boat right now because he's going to get us to the other side. And the scriptures say, Jesus gets in that boat and immediately they are to the other side. Those disciples, those disciples sitting there were looking and I bet they were thinking, oh my goodness, Jesus is the new Moses. Jesus is leading us in a new Exodus. He's getting us to the other side. My dad, growing up, he was a business guy. And he'd often uh, just have these leadership axioms that he'd speak into my life. I remember uh, I was a basketball guy and in high school, we'd be down 10 at halftime and I'd come out of the locker room and he'd see me. He kind of called me over and just whisper in my ear. He'd say these four words, change adversity into opportunity. And he'd say it all the time. As I got older and I was leading a church and, and pastoring, I'd, I'd have like this just difficult time and maybe with a, with a uh, just conflict or some financial struggle. And I'd call him and he'd just tell me, Steve, change adversity into opportunity. The truth is adversity can be an incredible teacher. It's an opportunity for us to grow spiritually in our trust, mentally, emotionally, physically, Our dependency on God can grow when we face adversity, but also our opportunity when we face adversity can be for us to go backwards. Maybe to turn to unhealthy things. I don't know about you, but this has been a season unlike any other that I've ever faced. And I felt some of the seas, I felt kind of the uneasy. I I felt frightened like those disciples. Uh, Even this week, I found a a box of thin mints that I had buried and hid in the freezer. And in one day, I downed an entire sleeve of thin mints. You know what anxiety tastes like? Thin mints. And I literally just ate my anxiety and worry. And I think for some of us, We've been turning maybe to one too many glasses of wine. Maybe for some of us, we've been turning to some pills. Maybe for some of us, we've been turning to Amazon and buying things and putting things on credit. One too many purchases. Or maybe for some of us, we've gone online and we've looked at one too many images. Or maybe we've tried to go online and connect with one too many people for some sense of emotional connect. In an unhealthy way that wasn't our spouse. My friends, when adversity hits, it can be an opportunity to grow in trust and dependency. But it also can be an opportunity to grow in unhealth. I love what Tim Keller would call this. He said that for many of us, we, we turn and struggle to our counterfeit gods. When you find yourself in the midst, in the middle of a crisis... Where are you turning? Are you turning to Jesus? The one who's walking on the chaos? The one who looks at you and says, it is I, I am who I am. Do not be afraid. Or do you find yourself turning to something else? 
See, those disciples recognized the only way out of the crisis, the only way out was through this man. And I know in this season, Cornerstone, if our trust is in Christ, we will get to the other side. The first storyline is the creation story. The second storyline is the Exodus story. The third storyline is the people's story. And what do I mean by this? See, in John chapter 6, yes, it's the Passover season. So John's trying to frame it. But then Jesus feeds the 5,000. And the scriptures say that when Jesus feeds the 5,000, the people see this. And look what it says. Verse 15, Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. See, Jesus had just performed this sign and wonder, this miracle. And all of the expectations of the people began to grow. And they kept thinking to themselves, he's it. He's the anointed one. He's the one that's going to rescue us from Rome. And the stories just began to build so much so that Jesus saw it. He could perceive it. I often will say kids are very perceptive. They're just not always the best interpreters of reality. We could perceive something, but it's the stories that we tell ourselves that end up guiding the way that we choose to act and live. And right here, the people were perceiving something's different about this man, but how they interpreted it was to meet their expectations of what they wanted this man to be. They had just a bit off. A number of years ago, I was living in Southern California, and a buddy of mine said, hey, Steve, do you want to run a 5K? I was like, no. Like, why, why does anyone like to run? He goes, no, 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 you don't understand. Our whole town comes out. My family, they, they'd love for you to come. And, and after we run, we just kind of celebrate with our, our, our friends and, and the city. And then that night, it's tradition. Our parents take us to a nice steak dinner. I talk to them. They'd love for you to join us. It's steak on them. And I thought to myself, oh, free steak? Okay, I can run a 5K. And so a couple weeks later, I, I wake up super early. I drive two hours south. I see my friends, I meet his parents, I'm stretching, I look to the right, I see some porta potties it feels like the right thing to do before a race, I walk over there, use the porta potties I come back, and I can't find my friends, and I can't find his family, but I'm being herded up to the starting gate, and I hear over the intercom, the announcer saying, all right, runners, here we go, five, four, three, two, one, go, and I'm thinking, it's a 5K, I'll see him somewhere, and there's thousands of people running, and so I'm just running, and I feel like I've been running a long time. I did not train for this. And I'm just like, I'm just running. And I feel, I feel a bit tired. And I see this guy who's got to be in his 70s, possibly even his 80s. He's ahead of me, which already has me a little bit bitter, if I'm honest. And I look at this guy and I say, hey, man, I feel like we've been running a long time. How much farther do we got to go? And he looks down at his watch and he goes, oh, brother, we just hit the five-mile mark. We got 8.1 to go. And I said, I thought this was a 5K. And he chuckles and he laughs. He goes, dude, you're in the wrong race. And I'm like, dude, you're in the wrong race. I know that now because I can't feel my body. And I'm thinking to myself, my friend and his family pulled the epic just prank on me. And I just started kind of sinning in my mind about my friend. 
I was like, I am so angry, but I'm not going to quit. And so I, I began to like stumble, crawl, walk, sort of run. I've lost all the sodium in my body. I cannot feel my legs. And as I'm crossing the finish line, I see my buddy and he's got that smirk on his face. And he looks at me and goes, dude, you ran the wrong race. And I'm like, I know I did. That night I went to the, the steakhouse. I couldn't even enjoy the steak. And as I drove home that evening, I just started thinking, and I felt as if God just kind of whispered. I said, Steve, there's some areas in your life where you are thinking you're running a 5K, but literally you're running the wrong race. The people, the Hebrew people just found themselves fixated with their expectations. You fast forward a couple years and it's Passover season again. But this time, Jesus isn't on a boat. He's on a colt the foal of a donkey. He's fulfilling this prophecy from Zechariah chapter 9. He's walking into Jerusalem from the eastern part of the city. And as he walks in, people have just laid out cloaks. They've laid down palm branches. It's what we know as Palm Sunday. And they're screaming at the top of their lungs, Hosanna, which literally means, please save. Hosanna, save Please. And this is a desperate cry. They are crying this out saying, please save us from our oppressors. Please save us from Rome. Hear it. And the storylines about what Jesus had done, his teachings, his miracles, the signs and wonders, they had all begun to be interpreted as this man is going to set us free. And they're crying out, save us. A number of years ago, I took a buddy of mine from Grand Rapids, Michigan. His name's Corey. I took him to Chile. They were doing some mission work. And, and I said, hey, one day I'm going to take you to this amazing surf break. And I'm going to teach you how to surf. He had never surfed before. And so uh, a bunch of us, eight of us, get into a van. We've got four boards, four wetsuits. And so the thought is, hey, we'll just go half at a time and then the rest can read. And the other half will then go surf. The others can read. And, and so I tell Corey, hey, you're going to go with the first group. And here's what I want you to do. You're with three professional Chilean surfers. Do what they do. Watch them. Follow them. Stay close to them. And you're going to be fine. I give him a quick little lesson. He goes out, paddles out. Probably 20, 30 minutes later, I'm reading my book. I'm, I'm just deep into this great novel when all of a sudden the van door flies open. And one of my Chilean friends looks at me and goes, Mr. Steve, your friend Corey, he's going to die. And I'm like, what? I get out of the van, I run out. And all of the Chilean surfers are over here. And Corey is way off by himself and he is floundering arms floundering he's not even on the board waves are just crashing the current had just pushed him way over here and i hear him screaming por favor por favor which in my mind i'm like really that's what you're going to scream but what does that mean it means please in desperation he's crying out please somebody rescue me so we whistle over to one of our buddies he ends up catching a wave paddles over and then brings Corey in, drags him in. And I don't have the mercy gift in this moment, 
Corey's like a beached whale in his wetsuit, lying on the shore, exhausted. And I just look at him and go, dude, were you really screaming, por favor? And this was his answer. It was the only Spanish I knew. And here's the truth. When you go back to Palm Sunday, those people were just screaming, por favor, please, please save us. Those people were just desperate to be released from the suffering that they were going through. But Jesus wasn't the only one entering into Rome. See, on the western part of the city, the governor, Pontius Pilate, was coming. And this guy wasn't coming in on a donkey. He was riding in on a horse. And he wasn't followed by disciples. He was being followed by armed guards. And he didn't just represent God. He represented Rome. And the people are beginning to see This is like a heavyweight match about to happen. The people are expected and hopeful. Rabbi versus Rome. Disciples versus armed guards. Peace versus power. And the truth is, Jesus didn't meet those people's expectations. And I think if we're really, really honest... It's become so easy for us to place expectations on Jesus. How we need Jesus to be that serves me. How we need Jesus to be and what he needs to do for me. And little by little, we can find ourselves running the wrong race. And Jesus isn't here to meet all of our expectations. Can I just tell you this? You know what you get from following Jesus? You get Jesus. You get the fullness of who Jesus truly is. You get the man who's full of grace. You get all of that. He is full of truth. You receive all of that. You get the man who is peace incarnated. You can have all of that when you find yourself in the middle of a crisis, in the middle of a storm. See, the Roman governor came because he knew during seasons of festivals like Passover, the people might want to try and revolt. And so he shows up in full power to say, you will not topple Rome. And Jesus says, I'm not trying to topple Rome. I'm trying to set and liberate people from their sin and their brokenness. But he doesn't meet the people's expectations. And so five days later, the same people who are screaming, por favor, Hosanna, save us, please, now find themselves screaming, crucify him. Kill him. Because he didn't meet our expectations. Uh, Friends, here's, here's what you need to know. Little by little, it's easier for us to not be expectant of Jesus to do a new thing, it becomes easier for us to place our expectations on what he needs to do for us. Are you choosing to be expectant this Holy Week? And maybe this is a time for you to become aware, what expectations have you unfairly placed on him? And that when he doesn't meet them, because he never said he was, You find yourself living in circumstances that dictate how you think and feel and act about yourself, about God, and others. 
See, for us to be Talmudine, disciples of Jesus, we need to be expectant of the new thing that Jesus wants to do in and through and with and for us. There's this amazing leadership formula. It's been actually plastered on the walls of, of college football teams. It's E plus R equals O. E plus R equals O. And here's what it stands for. Events plus response equals outcome. And the truth is, every coach, every leader would tell you, there are events that happen that are outside of your control. COVID-19, outside of our control. The only thing that we control is how we will choose to respond. And how we choose to respond will dictate what the outcome actually is. See, Holy Week, Holy Week is an invitation for you to ask yourself, how are you going to respond? See, for many of us, we're going to let the chaos win. We're going to be short with our words, and we're going to help people, our kids or our friends, just go backwards in the story. But we can respond with words that give purpose and meaning. Or for some of us, We're going to find ourselves just kind of in the middle of this crisis. And all of a sudden, this adversity is going to come. And we're not going to see it as an opportunity to go deeper with Jesus. We're going to see it as an opportunity to run to our counterfeit gods. But what if? What if we were an expectant church? What if Cornerstone Prescott was expecting that Jesus, even in the midst of these circumstances, wanted to do something unique within us, even during this crazy day? And here's the truth. You got to really ask yourself honestly, what do you have control over? I know so many sincere Christ followers whose lives, headspace and heart space are fixated on yesterday, on the past. But the past has already happened. You can't change the past. I know so many sincere Christ followers whose headspace and heart space is fixated on tomorrow. Worry and stress and anxiety. But nothing that I can do can change tomorrow. The only thing that I, that you, that we have control over is right now. And how we choose to respond in this present moment prepares us for what God has in store for us. And church, I know that in seasons like this, it's easy for us to stay on the sidelines. But can I just remind you, don't waste the wait. Don't waste the wait. Use this as a season to speak life, to bring order. Use this as a season to go deeper, as an opportunity in adversity to grow in trust of your rabbi. And use this as a season to say, I'm going to respond. I'm going to respond in a way that prepares me, because I'm not wasting the way, that prepares me for what God has in the seasons to come. And if we do this, it will fulfill a sign and wonder that we'll look in our life and go, man, God, you did something wild and deep and profound. You led us to the other side. Cornerstone, I love you. And I want to pray these words and then we will respond. God, thank you. Thank you that your word can speak life. I believe that the scriptures are the inspired word of God, but even more than that, this word's, still inspire us today 
And I pray that these words would speak to the hearts and to the minds of your people. Bless them and keep them. And as we respond, I pray that we would sing, whether we're in our kitchens, whether we're in our living rooms, whether we're watching kind of in nature in in our backyards, I pray that we would sing these words because we know you, God, even in the midst of this chaos and circumstance, you will forever reign. We trust you, God. And all God's people said, wherever they are, amen.